Romans chapter 1, and the title of the message this morning is The Tragic Fallout, Corrupted Pursuits. I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning as we will, Lord willing, finish this first chapter in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 28. This is God's Word. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Some of you no doubt remember the events of April the 26th, 1986. I was a freshman in college when I first learned about the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in the Ukraine, Soviet Union, which suffered a a massive explosion that released radioactive materials all throughout the Republic of Belarus and Russia and the Ukraine and as far as Scandinavia and all throughout Western Europe. I don't know if you realized it, but an estimated 4,000 people lost their lives in that disaster. Over 350,000 people had to be resettled after this tragic event. I can tell you this, that when I visit the Republic of Belarus, I was told not to, uh, to drink milk, which means I can't put half and half in my coffee, which means I'm a sacrificial missionary, right? Because I love my half and half, but I just, I stay away from it. I stay away from those kinds of products. Why? Because the fallout has been so great. The disaster at Chernobyl affected not only thousands of lives in the short term, but affected thousands upon thousands of lives in the long term. And here's what I want you to pay very close attention to. Because of the radioactive accident, Surrounding the former Chernobyl nuclear power plant, it is estimated by scientists that this area surrounding this particular area will be unhabitable for at least 20,000 years. There will be no business activity. There will be no homes that will be built. There will be no amusement parks because of the radical fallout. In other words, the fallout that occurred after Chernobyl will occur generation after generation after generation after generation. We have discovered another kind of a fallout. We call it the tragic fallout. It is the fallout that takes place when people fail to honor God. When people fail to give thanks to God when they fail to think thoughts after God, when they fail to have a heart for God, and as they fail 
to worship God as he demands in his word. And we have been laboring over this section of scripture for the last several weeks because I want you to see, much like the Chernobyl disaster, that the effects of creaturely rebellion are absolutely catastrophic. And we've looked at that, haven't we, over the past several weeks as we examine the tragic fallout, I want you to think carefully about the rebellious nature of the creature. And we see that beginning to unfold in Romans chapter 1, beginning of verse 23. I want to show you this chart that illustrates the guilty creatures and the fallout that takes place because of their guilt, because of their radical fallenness, because of their alienation from God. First, we learn that they are a corrupted people. Verse 24 and 25 in Romans chapter 1, we learn that these guilty creatures have lustful hearts. And I understand that's not popular. It's something that your ears have a hard time uh, uh, taking in. It's something that's difficult to digest. But that's exactly what the word of God says about these guilty creatures. They are, they are lustful hearts. Paul also says that these guilt, guilty creatures have impure hearts. They have, as, as, as we, took great, uh, we, we took a great deal of time to unpack this, that they have exchanged the truth of God for the lie. They are a corrupted people. Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, that said that they're not only corrupted people, but they have corrupted passions. That's what we saw two weeks ago. They are a people of corrupted passions. They are a people of dishonorable passions, as Paul refers. They twisted God's original design for sexuality. And this is a very relevant topic because we see God's design for sexuality being twisted everywhere you go. In postmodern culture, you can see that whether it's in the academy, whether it's in newspapers, whether it's in film, whether it's in the educational system, that God's plan for sexuality has been turned on its head. It has been utterly twisted. Now, there is a common theme as we think about this fallout of people who are corrupted and people who have corrupted passions. And the theme is this, and we see it over and over again in Romans 1, and that is that God gave them up. In both of these cases, with the corrupted people and the corrupted passions, we learn in Romans 1 that God gave them up. May I remind you that the phrase gave them up in our English Bibles, comes from a Greek term that means to deliver. It means to deliver them over. It means to surrender them to something else or someone else. That's exactly what God does. And I have taken, taken time, week after week, to help you understand that when God gives someone up, and we'll see it again in our passage today, that his giving them up is voluntary. It's voluntary. It is also a sovereign decision. It is an act of divine permission. It is an act of divine protection. It is an act of divine judgment in the final analysis. And so as we near the end of Romans 1, we see the final tragic fallout. We move from corrupted people to corrupted passions to corrupted pursuits, which is the title of our message this morning. The word pursuit 
is a word that I have long been interested in. The word pursuit means to, to literally pursue someone or something. How many of you remember Trivial Pursuit, that famous game of the 80s? That's the game that my wife beat me in every time we played it. Trivial Pursuit. I can think of several images or words when I consider the word pursuit. I think of one movie in particular. I think of several books. One movie is the movie starring Will Smith, The Pursuit of Happiness. Or the book by Vince Flynn, The Pursuit of Honor. One secular writer has a book called The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. George Sweeting, the former president of Moody Bible Institute, just published a book, it hasn't even come in the mail yet, called The Pursuit of Excellence. Or some of you have read Jerry Bridges' well-known book, The Pursuit of Holiness. And then, of course, there is A.W. Tozer, who wrote the book, The Pursuit of God. You see, we are in a pursuit either for the good and the holy or for the evil. And so we conclude our study in Romans 1 by examining the corrupted pursuits of the rebellious creature. That is tragic fallout number three. And as we look at this section of Scripture, please remember that Paul is thinking about the surrounding context that we have taken the last three or four weeks to unpack as he pens these closing verses. And may I remind you as a footnote, this is a free footnote, no charge included, that we kind of made a a commitment together as a church family. Do you remember this? That we're going to memorize at least one book, one book, yeah, I wish, One verse out of every chapter in the book of Romans. And so as we come to the end of Romans 1, I want to ask you a question. And we're not going to have anyone come forward, although I want to do that. How many of you have memorized at least one verse in Romans chapter 1 over the last 18 weeks? You've had 18 weeks to do it. Several of you. Good. If you're not raising your hand, let me encourage you. Memorize at least one verse in Romans 1. And then next week as we make our way into Romans 2... Get to thinking, which verse will you memorize? And you recall that I did the math 18 weeks ago, that if 150 of us memorize one verse each, and I can't remember the exact number, but it's a massive number of Scripture that we will have treasured in our hearts. What a blessing that would be as a church family. And so here's Paul as he is thinking in terms of Romans 1. He cannot shake the horror and the hopelessness of the creaturely rebellion against the Creator. And it goes all the way back in the context to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The question I want to ask this morning is, how does the Bible, how does the Apostle Paul describe the corrupted pursuits of the creatures who have rebelled against God? And I want to give a a sort of an answer, but the, the real answer will come at the end of the message. Here's sort of an answer. The sum total of three headings that we will discover will provide the answer to this all-important question. Namely, how does the Bible describe the corrupted pursuits of the rebellious creature? The first heading, the first of three headings I want to supply you with is that their pursuit is characterized by an evil mind. Their pursuit is characterized by an evil mind 
please remember that if you are not a follower of Jesus, that all that we are going to discover over the next several minutes applies directly to you. You're saying, are you telling me that I have an evil mind? I'm telling you that the God who is holy, 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 says that if you are not in right relationship with the God of the universe through the completed work of Jesus Christ, that your mind is more evil than you can ever imagine. Now, for those of you who are followers of Jesus, your mind has been utterly transformed. When God views you, he now views you through the completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he does not see evil. He does not see evil, and we'll, we'll unpack that when we get to Romans chapter 4 and learn about justification. Romans chapter 5 and learn about justification. Romans chapter 6, and we learn about the, 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 the nature of sin and how it's been defeated. The power of sin has been defeated. The penalty of sin has been defeated. And one day in heaven, sin will be utterly erased from our lives forever and ever. The first thing I want you to see is that the fallen man, the rebellious creature, is characterized by an evil mind. Look at verse 28. Paul says, And they, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. So for the third time, I hope you see the pattern here, God says in his word that he has given them up he's given them up what is the reason now for his response and we see it very plainly why does god hand them over answer they did not see fit to acknowledge him can you imagine that they did not see fit to acknowledge god that phrase see fit means to approve of something it means to judge as right or commendable it means to Judge as good. And the word acknowledge simply means to discern something clearly and distinctly as true or valid that evokes a proper response. See, when you choose to acknowledge someone, there are certain things you do to give evidence that you are rightly acknowledging that person. Fathers, may I encourage you with your children, with your sons and your daughters, when they meet someone, especially an adult, that they are able to stand in front of that adult, look them in the eye, give them a firm firm handshake, and say, Hi, my name's Davy Steele. Right? That's what my parents taught me to do. You look someone in the eye, You give them a firm handshake, and I'm so happy to see you guys doing it. You're practicing. Nice work. You're acknowledging one another. That's exactly what we do when we choose to acknowledge God. But what happens in the life of the rebellious person? The unconverted person simply passes God by. They casually pass God by. For the rebellious creature... God is unworthy of a second glance. He is unworthy to be acknowledged. And so they pay no regard to him. And so God says, because they did not see fit to acknowledge him, he gives them over. He hands them over. 
move now with me from the reality of his response, or the, the, rea- the, the reason for his response to the reality for his response. And Paul uncovers this for us. The reason he does it and what happens here is that he gives them over to a debased mind. God gives the unconverted creature over to a debased mind. The word mind here is an important word to wrestle with. It's simply the faculty which is responsible for a person's thoughts and feelings. This word translated from the Greek is literally the seat of reason. It is where rationality takes place. Paul says that God gave them up to a debased mind. Now, with the the definition of the Greek word translated mind in our consciousness, in our hearts, right before us, I need to unpack what debased means. If God gives these rebellious creatures over to a debased mind, what is that all about? The word means this. It means worthless or despicable. It means morally reprehensible. And what's fascinating to me is that Paul uses the very same language The word translated debased in the book of 1 Timothy. Let me read it for you. He says to the young pastor Timothy, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among a people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. That's exactly what we find with the unconverted person. That's exactly where I was before I was converted. I, have a de- I had a depraved mind and I was deprived of the truth. I want to show you one one summary chart that will help us to put all these things together. Here we see that God gave them up to their lust. He gave them up to their passions. He gave them up to a debased mind. When God gives them up to their lust, that leads to utter corruption among the people. When God gives them up to their, their sinful passions, that leads them to be a people of corrupted passions. And then he gives them up in our passage today to a debased mind. And that leads them down this path of, of, of pursuing corrupt things. Move with me now from the evil mind to evil deeds. And once again, to speak personally, you might be thinking, Pastor, are you saying if I'm not a Christian, I have not only an evil mind, but I'm committed to evil deeds? That's exactly what Paul is saying here. These are the evil deeds which are are on full display as God gives the creature up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. And I have to tell you that I I, I have read through this passage of Scripture probably hundreds of times over the last 25 years, and I was unprepared to wrestle with what was going to hit me in these three verses because Paul lists 21 sins. In three verses, 21 sins in three verses, things in three verses, rather things that ought not be done. And here's what struck me. I I, I do my best to think in terms of what does the postmodern culture, what are they thinking? 
what is their response? For those of you who are not Christians, I'm thinking from your vantage point, and it goes something like this. I'm sure that if you're not a Christian, you're thinking this. Who is the one who makes the rules? Who is the one who says, you need to do this and you shouldn't do that? And it's an easy answer, is it not? The, 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 the person who establishes the rules for morality is none other than the triune God. God is the person who sets the standards. Now here's what's interesting, if you would look at the text with me. He says in verse 29, Paul says, they were filled. That would be worth highlighting. They were filled. The word translated filled means, and this isn't going to be real intense for you, but it means to be filled to the brim. They were filled. And the illustration I have for you is when Paul says that they were filled, how many sins, by the way? 21. They're filled with 21 sins. That word filled is written in such a way in the Greek text to, to, to describe a container that is totally filled. There. It's totally filled, but we're not done. They were filled and overflowing. They were filled with these 21 particular sins. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, and then 20 more sins follow that sin. And so I want to walk through these with you, and we're not going to do detailed exposition, but I will make a very short reference to each sin. Notice with me. They are filled, first of all, with all manner of unrighteousness. The Greek word dikia, dikia is the word translated as righteousness. We are the dikia to Christon. We are the righteousness of Christ. If you are a Christian, you have been, you have been, you have received as a divine gift the righteousness of Christ. You are also called to live as a person of Dikia, righteousness. But as you look at verse, as you look at Romans chapter 1, verse 29, you will see that the word there is not Dikia. It is ah Dikia. And whenever you put the alpha before a word, what happens? It cancels it out. Raise your hand if you're a theist. You believe in one God. Keep your hand up if you're an atheist. Hopefully no one, but if you are, there is hope for you today. You will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. You put the A in front of theist, that means you don't believe in God. It cancels the theism out. And so here the word is adikia, that is unrighteousness. But Paul turns up the heat on the theological stove and he says, they are, they are filled with all manner of what? Unrighteousness. That is, they fail to adhere to moral principles or commandments or laws that are found in the word of God. They are also filled with evil, a word that is translated as perversion. They are filled with covetousness. That is to say, they are greedy. Jesus said, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Fourthly, they're filled with malice. That is the perverting of 
virtual, virtue and moral principles. Notice what Paul says now. If you look at your verse, he says, he reemphasizes, he says, they are, and I need to grab some extra water here. What's he say? They are full of these additional sins. He says they're full of envy. They're full of murder. They're full of strife. They're full of deceit, of maliciousness. Do you know what the word for maliciousness means? It means you have a desire to see someone suffer. That is the characteristic of the pagan. They desire to see someone suffer. They are gossips. The Greek rendition of the English word gossip means this. Are you a whisperer? Word of God calls that person a gossip. A slanderer. One who attacks the reputation of another through slander or libel. I don't know if you have ever been at the, at the other end of the stick and you have been slandered or been written about by someone lying about your character. I can't think of anything more painful than to have someone say, this is the way she is, or this is the way he is, and it's not true. They are haters of God. They are insolent, defined as a person who engages in disrespectful acts or utter statements that are outrageously forward and bold. They are haughty, that is arrogant. They are boastful or pretentious. They are inventors of evil. They are disobedient to their parents. They are foolish, which is translated as senseless. The 19th sinful quality here that they are filled with is faithless. A word that is described or defined in the Greek as, and this one really got me, it means covenantlessness. It's a difficult one to say. Or without the covenant. It describes a person who is not bound or considering themselves bound by the covenant, usually characterized by double-dealing behavior. This is a crook. This is a person who says, I refuse to obey the law of God. I am without the covenant. And you know what's scary about the person who is numbered among the covenantlessness? Some of you here this morning are hearing these words and you're thinking in the back of your mind, you got that right, Pastor. I do as I please. My life is my own. It's my body. It's my house. It's my car. These are my possessions. This is my mind. This is my heart. I do as I please. And the word of God says this describes a faithless person. The 20th sinful quality is heartless or lacking in affection for others. And finally, Paul says that this describes a ruthless person or one who is mercilessness. May I tell you that as I studied these various words and spent the time and did the legwork and looked up the definition in the Greek, as I was exhausted at the end. I took five minutes and unpacked them for you. This, this was half a day, and I was exhausted. But in my exhaustion, one of the things that stood out to me was this, this no longer describes the follower of Jesus. 
And so I went from exhaustion to exhilaration. Because if you're a follower of Christ, these are not the ways that God sees you. He sees you through the completed work of Christ. And so the rebellious creature, his or her pursuit is characterized by an evil mind and by evil deeds. And then Paul concludes with one final heading. He says their pursuit is characterized by evil motives, by evil motivations. Look at verse 32. He says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They have evil motives. And I want to tell you something that may not sound significant, but, but, but it carries a massive weight of significance. Here is what we learn about the, the unbelieving, rebellious creature. Are you ready? They know something. You say, wow, that's deep. They know something. Look again at verse 32. Though they, you see it, know God's righteous decree. The word translated know is a word, it's a, it's a prominent word that is translated throughout the pages of the New Testament. It means to discern something clearly and distinctly as true or valid. Though they know, you see, the pagan, the unbeliever, the, the, the non-Christian, he or she knows beyond a shadow of a doubt who God is. He or she knows beyond a shadow of a doubt what God ex- expects of them. And I want to illustrate it in the following way. I want to illustrate the importance of this word by inviting you to think of a, a real-life scenario, one you can all relate to. I want you to imagine with me a husband and a wife. You have a husband and a wife who have three children. Some of you here this morning are married and have three children. You can relate to this. Mom decides to go to the grocery store with two of the kids, and she leaves the, the oldest teenage daughter at the house. And this daughter accidentally stubs her toe on the coffee table, falls down, hits her head, and begins to bleed. By the way, did I tell you that the dad is at the house? So you've got this scenario. Mom has taken two of the kids. They're at the grocery store. Dad's at the house. Teenage daughter stubs her toe on the coffee table, falls on the ground, hits her head on the ground, and begins to bleed. The father walks in grabs a bag of potato chips, Tim's chips, the best, grabs a can of Pepsi, pops the Pepsi open, pours it over a big glass filled with ice, plops himself down on the sofa, and begins to watch a football game. When his his wife and the other two children arrive about an hour later, They walk in, and the first thing they see is the teenage daughter lying on the floor, bleeding and unconscious at the feet of her father. And the first thing any mom would do is she attends to the needs of her daughter, and once she has taken care of her daughter, she looks up on bended knee at her husband and says, What in the world happened? What happened to our daughter? She's bleeding. 
Why haven't you helped her? How could you be so foolish? How could you be so obtuse? And here's how he responds. I didn't even know she was there. I didn't know she was there. Now, this is a, an overly dramatic illustration to make a point. But this is exactly what the rebellious creature does. The rebellious creature knows something. The rebellious creature knows something. And I want to conclude by showing you exactly what the rebellious creature knows. Again, verse 28, though they know God's righteous decree. The first thing the fallen rebellious creature knows is that God is the creator. How do we know that? Romans 1.19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Romans 1.20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. In Psalm 19, the psalmist writes with great enthusiasm, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. The fallen creature knows that God is the creator. Every evolutionist knows that God is the creator. Charles Darwin knew that God is the creator. Richard Dawkins, the most well-known atheist alive, knows that God is is the creator. There's a second thing that the fallen creature knows. The fallen rebellious creature knows something about God's character. And we read that in verse 20, the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived. And so the rebellious creature not only knows God's the creator, he knows what God is like. He knows something of his attributes. Number three, the fallen creature knows God's commandments. And that's exactly what verse 32 tells us. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. And that leads to the fourth thing they know. And this is the most sobering one of them all. And that is that the fallen creature knows the consequences. They know that the penalty for actively opposing God's righteous decree is death. We'll see that when we get to Romans chapter 3, for the wages of sin is death. And what struck me as I, as I studied this passage is that in light of all this knowledge, the fallen creature willingly pursues a sinful lifestyle. They not only willingly pursue a sinful lifestyle, but Paul says they promote a sinful lifestyle. You can see that in verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, that's personal accountability, but they give the seal of approval to those who practice them. And we see that in our culture. We see it in government. We see it in the business world. We see it in the academy. And we even see it in local churches. And so their, their pursuit, their pursuit of these rebellious creatures is characterized by an evil mind, 
by evil deeds, and finally, by evil motives. And as we come to the end of this chapter, in Romans chapter 1, this is a time, I believe, to ask some very, very important questions. And I'll give them to you to consider. And the first question is, do I stand among the people who have rebelled against the Creator? Am I in the ashes of theological Chernobyl? Do I stand among the ashes of people who have rebelled against the Creator? Second, am I standing in opposition to a holy God? Am I rebelling against his authority? I had a friend by the name of James when I was, I believe, a freshman in college. We worked at a business together. And he was a professing follower of Christ. And one day he came to me and said, I'm, I'm, I'm done with historic Christianity. I'm, I'm going to do my own thing. It's all about me. And I gave him a stern warning. And it was as if this, this sermon played out in his mind because he rebelled against the Creator. He stood in opposition to a holy God. He rebelled against the authority of a God who is holy, holy, and holy. And you know what James said to me? He says, maybe I'll get serious about walking with Jesus down the road. Down the road. Do you know I never saw James again? I don't even know if he's alive. And I trust that if he is alive, he is turned over the reins of his heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because today is the day of salvation. I shared a story with the worship team this morning about one of my heroes, Martin Lloyd-Jones. I think I shared something about him last week as well. But I watched a video a few days ago that described how Martin Lloyd-Jones, a a Welsh uh, preacher, he was first a a physician, physician of the Queen of England, one of the most well-known doctors in all of England. And... uh, The Lord called him to full-time vocational ministry. He became a pastor. And he would do biblical exposition week after week after week. And one day he was preaching, as was his custom, on Sunday morning. And he he, he decided to, to preach a passage that unpacked the doctrine of sin. And he got to the end of the message and he decided he would wait. And this was his custom for, for quite a while in his ministry. He would wait until the evening service to share what the solution to the sin problem was. So sin problem in the morning, solution in the evening when people came back. Well, this was during the days of World War II. And he preached this message on sin and told the congregation, come back later this evening and I will share with you the solution to the sin problem. There was a bombing in London that day and some of the people in that congregation lost their lives. And it haunted Lloyd-Jones because he wondered if there were any that heard the message that morning that had perished without knowing about the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he changed his whole philosophy of ministry. He decided never to do that again, that he would never wait until later in the evening to provide the answer. And that is my charge as well. If you are drowning in sin, if you have rebelled against the authority of the Creator, if you are opposing His righteous decree, as James should have known, my friend, today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, not next week, not when you graduate from college, not after you get married, not after you have children, not after you're a self-made man or a self-made woman. Today is the day of salvation. Am I pursuing a sinful lifestyle? And am I promoting a sinful lifestyle? I'll guarantee you this. If you're living a sinful lifestyle, by definition, you are promoting a sinful lifestyle to those in your circle of influence. So if you have answered in the affirmative to any of these questions, the scripture would tell us this, that you are guilty 
on all accounts. And the only proper response is to turn from your sin before it is too late and to trust the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who paid the price for all your sin on Calvary's cross. You must believe that Jesus died a death on the cross, that he lived a perfect life, the life that you could never live. You must believe that the Father raised him from the dead on the third day. In other words, it matters what you believe. I'm so grieved by so much of what I hear in even the church where people say it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you're sincere. You can be sincerely deceived. And so it matters what you believe. You must believe that Jesus rose again on the third day and that today is the day of salvation. Let me close. For followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is many of you, and I'm so thankful for that, remember your former condition before you receive grace. Remember before you were a believer, before you were a Christian, that these 21 sins described your very life. At one time, your passions were corrupt. My passions were corrupt. At one time, your pursuits were corrupt, and my pursuits were corrupt as well. But when grace came into your life like a rushing wind, everything changed. Everything changed. Your status before God changed. Your motivations changed. Your inclinations changed. Your residence changed. You moved from the city of man to the city of God. Everything was changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's my pleasure to talk to young people, to children, to teenagers, to the oldest of saints here at Christ Fellowship who have been revolutionized by the gospel. What a blessing. And for those of you, and, and I see some of you right now, who are, who are seated like this, just leaning forward, ready to hear the truth of God's word, what an encouragement that is. May we all be leaning in, ready to hear the truth of God's sacred word as we plow next week into Romans chapter 2. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for this journey that we're on. Thank you for all that we're learning. Lord, we confess that there was a day when we were rebellious creatures. We were rebellious people, corrupt people. We were people of corrupt passions. We were people of corrupt pursuits. We thank you for, for grace. We thank you for Jesus who died on the cross for our sins. We thank you for the gospel. And may we never grow weary of hearing the gospel message. And so, Lord, for believers today, I pray that they would take a look into the rearview mirror and that they would remember what they were like before grace came crashing into their lives. And may it lead them to a place where they worship you, where they stand in awe before you. For every non-believer here today, God, I pray instead of being offended, that they would be blown away by the, the amazing message of the gospel, that today would be the day of salvation for them, that they would turn from their sin, they would turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and no longer, for as long as they live, be characterized by the 21 sins in this sobering passage. So thank you for Christ Fellowship. Thank you for the great things you're doing here in our church family. We're looking forward to a wonderful year as we kick this year off. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's